it is Wednesday, and that means it is time for a Christians and Mental Health Podcast. I am Rachel Ward. And I am Will, the uh, color commentator, and I don't really know what I'm here for on this episode, so we will see. <laughs> um, for those of you who might be tuning in for the first time, I am a clinical psychologist with about 25 years of experience, and I've seen about... Uh, 12 or 14,000 people. So I'm just bringing kind of lots of gathered information over many years and many people. And Will is my son. And so he's giving, I'm giving kind of the Generation X perspective on some things. And Will is giving the millennial-ish. Late millennial Late millennial perspective. Um, So one of the reasons he said he doesn't know as much what he's going to commentate, Will comes into these podcasts cold. I have a topic and I just bring it up. And to his credit, he just he rolls with it and jumps in. Um, so the topic I'm going to talk about today, because we just last week talked about back to school and some just different ways to look at back to school. And so today to continue on that theme, I'm going to just give a brief overview of what I call kind of the three essentials of parenting. And this is just what I've distilled down from uh, studying, from talking to many, many parents, from being a teacher and from being both a child, being parented myself and having parented children. Um, and so Will, you can kind of give your thoughts on whether these surprise you, you know, as a non-parent yes. yourself uh, or whether you're like, that's all not is worthless. Absolutely. So here's what I would start as the first essential of parenting. And I actually think it's the single most important of the three. And the first essential is that each parent is brutally honest about who they are and how they see parenting. I think for most of your years of parenting, this will be almost 75% of the impact of your parenting. And what I mean by this is, I use the example in classes. If you have a three-year-old and you're in Target, and you have to pick up some stuff, and you're in the toothbrush aisle, and she sees, let's say, a Dora the Explorer or Peppa Pig toothbrush, and she just throws a fit because she wants that toothbrush. How do you define that fit? Do you say, wow, she is a brat. She's controlling my whole life. Do you say, oh no, everyone's going to think I'm a terrible parent because she's throwing a fit? Do you say to yourself, okay, I should have let her take a nap before she came. This isn't her fault. You give her the toothbrush. Do you say, "Uh uh-oh, she's got to learn that she can't have everything she wants. And so we're going to leave the store, you know, because she's having a fit or she'll sit in the cart and cry. And how you see kind of define or react to your child's behavior? Or even is she embarrassing me? You know, she's embarrassing me in front of all these people. How you define your children's behavior is going to set the entire tone for your household. So if you see your children as extensions of you and ways that their behavior is other people are judging you or your children are embarrassing you, your household's going to be set up in one way. If you see children as you're, you know, you are an adult and you are to care for them and guide them and nurture them and they're going to have 20 years to go through development, you're going to set up a very different kind of household. And so it becomes really important for you to think about how you were parented, what values you think are helpful that your parents gave you, 
what shortcomings you think there was in your parenting that you might have to fix before you um, kind of go into parenting your own children. So another very easy way to look at this is I think everybody was raised with an emotional language in their household. And it's as real a language as if you spoke German, French, or English in your household. So there, to me, there's kind of three basic emotional languages. The first language is yelling. So when there is a crisis in a household, some families, their language of response is yelling. They yell, they fight, they freak Hmm. out. They're like, why are you doing this? You know what I mean? Like, why didn't you pay back your backpack? Why are you always causing this trouble? Come on, don't you see how upset I am? So that's one emotional language. Another emotional language on the other end of the spectrum is what I would call the silent treatment or no communication. So some families, when there is a crisis or they're facing a crisis, communication shuts down, you know, famously known as a silent treatment. So like if dad's mad, all the kids know it because he's silent and the kids have to respond to that. Then in the middle is what I would call the language of compromise or problem solving. So if if there's a crisis in the family or a crisis in the day, people discuss, how are we going to solve this? So you have kind of the yelling language, the um, discussion language, and you have the silent language or the silent treatment. And so how you were raised is your norm. So sometimes I have a married couple in my office and one will have been raised with a yelling language and one with a silent language and they think the other one's crazy. They'll say like, he never talks. And And the guy will say, oh my gosh, she's yelling all the time, right? And so just think, based on how you were raised is going to be your norm, and so you're going to typically raise your children that way. Yes. So, Will, what would you say was the language in our household? I mean, I would say it leaned more towards the problem-solving and compromise. Yeah. I I would say. I would say, I would agree with you. I would think neither dad nor I was much of a yeller. I can probably count on one hand the times there was like a big yell freak out in our house growing up. And I would say that definitely uh, I was not a silent treatment person. Yes. (laughs) I probably asked more questions than my kids wanted to hear. Um, But yes, I would say that we were more compromised. And if anything, we probably leaned towards there's things that at times we could have discussed more. Yes. That's fair. So now what's interesting about that is I grew up in a family, seven children in a 1,500 square foot house, one bathroom, but neither one of my parents were yellers, right? So my language growing up was much more problem solving, compromising language. Yes. And dad grew up in a family where if anything, it was problem solving absolutely and veered towards silent treatment. A little bit, you know, or like silence when things were upset. So you can see the language we grew up with greatly impacted the language you grew up with. Agreed. And so I cannot express enough that as parents, we need to know the values, the, the system, the thoughts, the language, the emotionality that we are bringing into our role. It will set up our children's entire lives and will set up our entire household. And so um, that is not a guilt-producing thing. It is saying we have a lot of influence, and that's a good thing because we want to influence our children in a good way. But it's important to look at what we're going into parenting with. Yes. The second essential of parenting, along with knowing yourself very well, is the developmental level of your child. 
So it is important to understand how a two-year-old is different than a five-year-old, how a five-year-old is different from a 12-year-old, and how a 12-year-old is different from an 18-year-old. So let's just look at a brief overview. So I've said before in this podcast that the human brain is not fully wired for the first time till in general girls are 24 and boys are 26. So you have to realize that even when you're dealing with an 18 year old, their brain is not fully wired for the first time. And in general, the last part to be fully wired is the frontal lobe, which is understanding cause and effect, planning, it's called the executive center. Um, So it's really like important to know that when you're talking to a five-year-old, no matter how verbal they are, how no matter how able they are to parrot back what you're saying to them, they are still trapped in a five-year-old brain. So for instance, I mean, there's lots of different studies. I could, might have said this before in a podcast. They will take pictures of three men into a kindergarten class, big pictures, like, you know, uh, uh, scientists will do this. They won't tell the kids anything about the three men at all, and they'll just say to the kindergarten class, which one of these three is the bad man? And they know that 98% of the kindergartners will pick a man with a black mustache. Hmm. Right? They don't know anything else. But to a kindergartner, of course he's the villain because he has a black mustache. Yeah. Right. Huh. And so that's the level of a, 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 you know, a kindergartner's thinking. We know that like five year olds can are probably living in a concrete 15 minute time zone. So you have to think about if you punish them for something that happened two days before, they don't remember it. It is two days before. I mean, they might remember, but it's not even in their reality anymore. Um You know, again, like I said before, the average 16-year-old is living in a four-day time span. Um, We know that things like in elementary school, kids think in terms of fair play, rules to the game, and justice. So to a third grader, one of the greatest um, injuries you can do to them is something they feel is unjust. So if you can remember playing kickball when you were in third grade and someone would cheat, that was like a huge deal. You know, and so it becomes very important to understand, you know, like, let's take the issue of spanking. If a parent chooses to spank, um, a six-month-old is not an appropriate child to spank, right? A six-month-old does not understand right and wrong. They don't understand consequences. They are truly, truly just a little infant responding to hot and cold pain, hunger. That's all they're responding to. But neither is it really appropriate to spank a 13-year-old, right? Because you're looking at someone who you can reason with, who pain is not really, you know, physical pain or is not a motivator. And so you look at if you are going to spank, what is the appropriate time and how are you appropriately doing it? So developmental level becomes very important. I have spoken to many, many parents who will say to me, you know, we explained to our daughter why she can't do this. She could say back to us why she couldn't do it. And two days later, she did it. And I'd go, right, because she's six. You know what I mean? She's only six years old. And so um, it's really, uh, it's great. You can go online and just look at development.com and they'll give you some outlines of basic childhood development, how their brains are working at that time. You know, one of the interesting things is in development is when you're in your middle to late teens and like say you're 
daughter wants to dye her hair purple or your son, you know, wants to um, get a tattoo or, you know, they're acting differently than they did four years before. One of the developmental tasks of being a teenager is trying out different ideas or kind of life choices and seeing how they turn out. So you're trying to, you're almost like trying on different costumes of life and deciding which one you want to keep on or build upon as an adult. So that some of that experimentation in teenage life is normal. Absolutely. Right? And it doesn't mean that's where they're going to land. So the number one essential of parenting is knowing who you are and how you see your children. Number two is understanding the importance of the developmental level of your child and that kids cannot skip developmental levels. They can jump grades. They can be better in sports than other kids. But every kid has to go through every stage of development. Yes. The last one is understanding each child's temperament. And so this is something that psychologists have been studying pretty closely for over 100 years. And they have seen that babies are born hardwired in certain temperaments. And again, you can go online and look at temperament.com is actually a website, and you can see these different combination of temperaments. But for instance, there's babies who are one end of the spectrum are by nature easy to soothe, versus babies who are difficult to soothe. There are children who are very regular, they sleep regularly, they go to the bathroom regularly, they eat regularly to children who are very erratic and very difficult to have on a, on a schedule. Now, interestingly, Will, who is here with me, slept through the night at six weeks, took a nap every day. He was incredibly regular, right? Like we could predict that. Yeah. He had a niece, a cousin named Elizabeth, who I remember her mother telling me she never took a predictable nap the whole time. Like hmm. some days she might sleep for two hours, the next day she might sleep for 10 minutes. So they could never build their day around her napping schedule. Yeah. So that was hardwired into Will, that was hardwired into her. Um, shy versus outgoing and that continuum is tends to be hardwired into kids. Now this is amazing, but they've replicated this many times. You can put a three-month-old baby into a bouncy chair. You can then take a ball on a string and slowly swing it over their face back and forth. The reaction of that baby will predict with almost 90% accuracy whether they will be shy when they're six. And here is the response. If the babies startle when the ball goes over their face, like shake their hands out or startle, they tend to be fairly socially comfortable or outgoing. If the babies just lay there and watch the ball, they tend to be pretty shy when they're six years old because hmm. they're holding their reaction interiorly. Yes. So understanding that some children are hardwired to be outgoing, some children are hardwired to be um, comfortable with new environments and new surroundings and be interested in them. And some children are very much, you know, watchers and they are cautious about new surroundings. Um, some children are introverted by nature. Some children are much more extroverted. It becomes very important to know that each one of your children is going to be hardwired a little differently and how they're hardwired is going to determine a lot of how you parent them. And what's most shocking for parents is that they're going to be hardwired differently than you are. Hmm. And I will say one of the biggest mismatches I see is a really extroverted parent who has a really introverted child. 
right? So that parent will always think there's something wrong with that child. They're depressed. They're unhappy. They want to be alone all the time, you know? And so understanding if you have an introverted child, if you're an extrovert, becomes really important. So I think that uh, the understanding temperament and the ways that can really affect how you and your children see the world just becomes super important. Knowing your temperament. Are you irritable? Are you fairly laid back? Are you driven? Are you um, introverted? Are you extroverted? Will also help you see how you might react to a child who's different than you. So Hmm. we and our family will, one interesting thing is like, our temperaments all have some real similarities to them. Yes. Um, I think, you know, you were more laid back. Your brother was more driven. What? <laughs> I am by nature more practical. You are more of a dreamer, you know? Yes. And so, like, those were things. Now, interestingly, all four of us in our family tend towards the introverted side of the scale. Yes. That was really helpful. Because we all understood and weren't insulted if we wanted alone time. Right. You know? It's true. Yeah. And so, like, we always laugh. I have a sister. My oldest sister is extroverted, and I am introverted. And she and I laugh about how we see the world differently. (laughs) Um, Okay. So the three essentials of parenting, I would just say, are the beginning of understanding parenting is, one, understanding who you are and how you see parenting, especially based on how you were parented. Secondly, it's understanding the developmental level of your child. What is realistic to expect and where should you be pushing them if they're a little bit behind in development? Lastly is understanding the temperament of each child you have so that you don't try to break their temperament or break their will, but how do you mold that natural temperament into the best direction that it can go? You know, talking to parents or looking at examples in your family, like extended family, that you think are helpful. Of course, you know, talking to people who have been through it. um, I do think that parenting, you know, as a Christian, I think the Bible is very clear that parenting is about understanding that we are given a moral responsibility by God to raise children of good character. I think that the Bible says some really surprising things about parenting, like everybody kind of focuses on spare the rod, spoil the child. But you know, like the proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go, and in the end he will not depart from it. But the Hebrew word for train in that passage was when a baby was born and was failing to thrive. The Hebrew nurses would stick their fingers in sour grape juice or fig juice and stick it into the baby's mouth, and it would teach them how to latch onto their mothers because it would cause them to pucker their mouths. That is the Hebrew word for train. Oh. So they're really saying, get your children to latch on to the right way of life, and in the end, they won't depart from it. So it's a parent's job to get their children to latch onto it. I think it's stunning in the New Testament. When they talk about the three jobs of John the Baptist, you know, making the way, calling the people to repentance, then the third thing is to turn the hearts of parents towards their children. Right. So the Bible is very clear that adults are given a moral responsibility to direct their children in a way that their children's hearts are turned towards God and towards his virtue. I think in the ten, when the giving of the Ten Commandments, 
right? It says, for every one of you that keeps these commandments, your family will be blessed for hundreds of thousands of generations. For every one of you that breaks these, your family will be cursed for three to four generations. I don't think that's God saying, I'm going to punish you. I think it says when you break the law of God, your family is affected for generations. And so um, I think the Bible is a really good place to start because it has a real love for parents and for children. Um, and yes, I think listening to other parents is helpful to a point, um, but you also have to know what their value system is. Absolutely. Yeah. So hopefully this is just a helpful way to look at parenting kind of from the outside in and to look at different ways to set up your family for the best success. Parenting is a adventure. Um, every set of parents is worried they're not doing a good job. One of my favorite sayings about parenting is you get to do hundreds of things wrong because you'll do thousands of things right, right? And you don't have to be perfect. Um, God loves parents. He put every human community into family systems because he knew how important that was for children. And I think now having adult children myself, if you can stick in with parent in parenting, try to you know, pick yourself up when you feel like you've had a disaster, trust in God, pray, have faith at the center of your family. As a parent, it will grow you into the most mature and, you know, best version of yourself. So we are always rooting for parents. We are always rooting for kids. And um, hopefully this was helpful today, and we'll continue talking about children and parents in the next few weeks. Excellent. And if you would like to keep open for these next few weeks, make sure you follow, you subscribe to this podcast. And you can join us every Sunday at 830 and 1030 at 171 Cordello Parkway or on our live streams. Links in the description. Email us at will at providencehhi at, G, at, uh, at providencehhi.org. Uh, Again, that will be in the description along with our social medias, and we hope to see you next time.